Hello there, I'm Gretchen Miller and this is the Rescue Project podcast where we're exploring unique and personal relationships with the natural world but also how we might step in and step up to repair it. These are stories that are unique to the teller and yet might strike a chord for you in that they reflect a broader human desire to connect with the world and to take action for good. Rescue is a partnership with Landcare Australia and the University of New South Wales and me, and it's long been a passion of mine to bring voices that might otherwise remain unheard to the fore. And whether we do something as simple as observing our favourite park and noting when the trees flower, whether we have a friendship with the local magpie family, or whether we take bigger, more decisive action... The way we interact with the environment has deep impacts on our psyche. In this episode, two histories. One of a river in a remote part of New South Wales between the Snowies and the coast. And one of a contemporary activation of a landcare community. Listen up for tips about how your own landcare group might start. Artist Michael Fitzjames talks about how his art revealed something his observation hadn't spotted. And Margaret's story reflects on her hopes for the rebirth of just one tree in her garden. Let's start on the river, the Mongolo, near the little town of Braidwood, where some big names stepped forward to fight for pristine wilderness. This story is from Susan Doran, recorded by Vanessa Barrett. It's been 33 years now that the Friends of the Mongalo River, also known as FMR, have been protecting its crystal clear cloud-fed waters. However, Budawang elder Uncle Noel Butler tells us that the way we say Mongalo is all wrong. In the local Duraga language, the stress between the syllables is even. So it should be Mongalo. The source of the Mongalo is the spongy, sodden soils of the Misty Mountains, the Gondwanan Monga Forest, which lies on the escarpment above Batemans Bay on the New South Wales south coast. Its 75-kilometre journey does not lead east to the coast, however, though there was a misguided attempt at one stage to redirect it that way. Rather, it leads north, to join the Shoalhaven and Sydney's drinking water catchment. Judith Wright, a renowned poet and activist who lived on the river, was the instigator of FMR back in the 80s, along with Solvig Becking, a world-renowned weaver. When it became evident that mining and dredging of the river for gold may be approved, they began to organise aware that mining would poison river life by stirring up mercury in the riverbed. Mercury had leached from the 19th century mines, but remained stable while untouched. FMR mounted a successful court challenge, halting the mining in its tracks. From that time, Friends of the Mongolo River's strength reflected the combined passions and truth-telling of artists with the method of scientists. Val Plumwood, a famous early eco-feminist, and philosopher Peter Herbst, 
alerted FMR that plans were afoot to log three old-growth compartments of the Monga Forest where Gondwanan remnant plumwoods were to be found. So a music and poetry festival was held to assist in funding action to protect the forest. Then FMR sought and was allocated a seat for five years on the Commonwealth's Regional Forest Assessment. And meanwhile, Marina Tyndale Biscoe, zoologist and Nigel Wace, botanist, worked on gathering evidence of the animals and plants likely to be endangered by the logging plans. Later, Robin Stella, psychologist, led people into the forest to teach them of its wealth and continued to monitor the logging activity, warning activists in readiness for resistance. Harry Lang, poet, comedian and secretary of the FMR at the time, joined in the direct action with other activists in the Monga Forest, earning himself a paddy wagon ride and a day in court. Artists Christine Payne and Michael Gill worked through the nights, producing and posting memorable banners, posters and handouts in forest action after forest action. By mid-2000, the Monga Forest... Well, most of it was declared National Park by Premier Bob Carr. In the most recent decade, FMR Secretary Di Bott coordinated a number of significant projects aimed at monitoring the water quality of the river, restoring habitats and restoring riparian zones. Sue Wild River and environmental scientists kayaked the length of the Mongolo River, measuring and mapping various aspects of life, with results showing outstanding biodiversity and river health and, of course, plentiful platypus. More recently, Felicity Sturgis, also an environmental scientist, led the bank job, repairing erosion along the riverbank, engaging with traditional Ewan custodians as part of her work. Additionally, Mary Appleby, teacher and horticulturalist, has led plant identification tours along the paths of the races that were built by Chinese gold miners over 150 years ago. Right now, we're back in the forests, fighting logging on a steep-sided compartment adjacent to the Monga wilderness above the ancient corn trail. And we remain ever vigilant as a new licence to explore for gold has just been approved covering the northern end of the pristine Mongolo River. Citizen science is where we're moving now so that we will have, for future arguments, comprehensive records for longitudinal study of the life along this beautiful river. We've sadly lost many of the artists, scientists and activists who've made invaluable contributions to the protection of this magnificent environment through determined advocacy, creative campaigning protecting flora and fauna communities and employing empowering organisational ways and means, informed by rigorous scientific method. Their legacy inspires us. Susan Doran there. If you've ever wanted to start a landcare group but not known how, Louise Manning takes us to the creeks and waterways of Moreton Bay. An unstoppable force, Louise describes how her landcare group got started and it was with a paddle in the local lake. On Boxing Day in December 2015, my husband and I decided to get some exercise and go for a paddle in a local lake south of Brisbane. And this is how our landcare group got started. Regatta Lake seemed so clean with just the odd plastic bottle or two, but then 
we saw what lurked just below the surface. Lots of plastic bags, containers and food packaging. Our pristine lake was no longer clean. We set to work and removed over 14 garbage bags of rubbish. Tin cans, plastic bottles, coffee cups and huge amounts of polystyrene foam. After we finished, we felt elated. The lake was looking sparkling clean again. Opossum Creek journeys through our suburb and feeds into Woogaroo Creek before flowing into the Brisbane River, where it eventually gets to our Ramsar-listed Moreton Bay. Unsuspecting loggerhead turtles were feeding on jellyfish and plastic bag lookalikes, some which were possibly coming from our lake. So I began regular eco-friendly walks to keep the litter from entering the drains. It just didn't stop. I decided that I could do more, so in March 2016 I established a Clean Up Australia Day event with the local developer, council and conservation council Queensland. That day 385 kilograms of rubbish was removed from in and around the lakes. But once a year wasn't enough, so I created a Facebook page called Pick Up 3 Save Me where I posted photos, articles and videos about litter and the impact marine debris has on our turtles. The aim was to prevent today's litter from entering the lake and becoming tomorrow's problem. Residents joined in to help collect the litter, plogging as they went for walks or kayaking. Children realised that they could help too by doing one small thing to make a difference and they picked up litter on their way to school. I was inspired to write a children's book called Turtle Needs Help to encourage people to pick up plastic litter and became part of the pollution solution. The book was purchased by schools and libraries all over Australia, which was fantastic. But what I really wanted was some helpers on the ground. So in 2017, Springfield Lakes Nature Care, a land and water care group was formed. I felt overwhelmed about setting up a new group, but with the help of my husband and like-minded residents, it wasn't a chore. It was fun and exciting. I found a whole new group of people who were also interested in the environment. Fast forward to 2018, we had 200 people volunteer to help on Clean Up Australia Day. They collected nine cubic metres of rubbish. The group has grown from six core people to a group of 45 members. Together we have completed some significant projects and made many new partnerships with other environmental groups to help our flora and fauna. Louise Manning is still working as a land care coordinator, so feel free to get in touch with her if you're Brisbane-based. Now, you might recognise Michael Fitzjames's illustrations from a long career with the Sydney Morning Herald. These days, he's turned to another love, painting, and he has a keen eye. But sometimes, reality takes time to reveal itself. I'm an artist, though that's a rather large and flabby word these days. Let's just say I'm a drawer and painter. As such, I have a heightened aesthetic sensibility and like to think of myself as especially observant. 
but sometimes one gets to dominate the other. Recently I started a series of paintings around the New South Wales Southern Highlands, a country I've always loved. Rolling plains and hills, deep valleys and high ever-changing skies. I stayed in a remote place called Bulio and drew and photographed and walked the land. When I started painting back in the studio, I slowly began to realise that I was painting not the wonderful country in my mind, but the effects of drought. These are dramatically revealed in the tones and forms of what was there before my not quite as observant as I thought eyes. My aesthetic sense had trumped my being on the sight observation. Though drought is a regularly repeating event, somehow the land looks worse than ever, exhausted, dying. It's hard not to put this down to global warming rather than a naturally occurring cycle. At the end of days, there will be a terrible beauty. From Michael Fitzjames's landscape laid out on canvas to a Melbourne back garden, our next tale is from Margaret Storey, also an artist and a tough love gardener who writes of her relationship with a favourite grevillea. It wasn't the first tree I planted when we moved here 40 years ago, but it was one of the earliest. I loved it and the birds loved it. I watched the bottlebrush grow from a young sapling to a fully grown adult tree. It also inspired a painting of mine, a red wattle bird enjoying the pollen from the luscious red flower. That was one of my favourite paintings too. This year, a neighbour's garage caught on fire and the flames travelled to the back of their yard across to ours. I watched as my tree disappeared in a fiery red glow. Fortunately, the fire brigade prevented the fire from spreading further. But come morning, the devastation on our side of the fence was obvious. My bottle brush tree took the brunt of it. I gave it a once-over. OK, I thought. One side is gone, but the other was still green. So I thought, this is a tough tree. I will give it a small prune and hope to encourage new growth when spring arrives. I was careful not to overdo the pruning as it had already suffered enough shock. Whilst pruning, I was showered in the brown dust. The seeds from the small capsules released with great quantity. But my tree did not survive, and each day the green faded to brown until there was no green left. I couldn't let go, and when I thought more about the seeds, I decided to take on the challenge. I put some potting mix into one of those takeaway trays and grabbed some of the burnt seed capsules that still lay on the garden bed knocked them so the brown dust fell into the tray, sprayed water, popped the lid on and waited. I'm no brilliant gardener, by the way, and I often tell my plants, if you are not strong enough for my garden, then you are not meant to be here. And mostly, they survive. I was delighted to see tiny green specks in my tray of dirt, delighted that I might actually be growing babies from my favourite tree, and delighted to know that I was not just trying to grow brown dust. The little green dots were given tender, loving care, watching, checking, watering and allowing them air time. 
There were so many I could imagine a lovely hedge of my favourite tree growing along the back fence. The dots are getting bigger now, stretching higher, looking like little seedlings with wonderful possibilities. They have a long way to go, but if I can give my old tree new life through its babies, a new generation, there will be no stopping me. Fingers crossed. Margaret Storey's seedlings sadly didn't survive Christmas, but in happier news, her old tree now has new growth. The Rescue Project is produced and presented by me, Gretchen Miller, with sound engineering from Judy Rapley. And special thanks to the University of New South Wales and Landcare Australia and to all the storytellers who have taken part. If you'd like to read more of these beautiful personal stories or have one to share yourself, go to landcareaustralia.com.au slash rescue. There's also a link in our show notes and we'd love to hear from you. Please do share us with everyone you know and check out our other episodes on animals, on home ground and on the Atherton Tablelands where we take a longer look at what a remarkable community is doing. I'll see you next time. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.